0: There you have it. (laughs) We probably should have shown that video last week. We've shown it here before, but last week we had just started our new sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, where we're working our way through the book of Acts over the next few months, and that video is a great overview of the entire sermon series, actually. You basically just got every one of my sermons in three minutes, so if you don't remember any of the sermons, maybe you'll remember the video. It's too bad we don't have those, I thought, for every book of the Bible. It's like Cliff Notes you know, in video form for the Bible. So now you have the big picture about the book of Acts. Let's begin our second study today in this series in chapter two, where we will certainly dig a little bit deeper and see what we can glean from the scriptures today. As most of you probably know, uh, today is Pentecost Sunday. The word Pentecost means 50th, or 50 days, as it is celebrated seven weeks, or 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, after Easter Sunday. In the Hebrew culture, Pentecost was called Shavuot, or Feast of Weeks, or Festival of Weeks, commanded by God in Deuteronomy 16, 9, and 10. And that was celebrated 50 days after the Passover, and was originally instituted to commemorate the giving of the Torah to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. It was one of the three harvest festivals, and it was an extremely significant celebration for the nation of Israel. Today, uh, however, at least in our tradition, we recognize Pentecost as the commemoration of the events in Acts chapter 2, which spawned the birth, of course, of the New Testament church. And I mentioned last week there, there is an argument to be made for the genesis of the church Um, actually occurring in chapter 1 as the disciples were together in Jerusalem before the events in Pentecost where from verse 12 on we see the disciples together in one place in the upper room. This is chapter 1. They're in fellowship. And then verse 4 it says that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And then as you continue to read through chapter 1, as we did last Sunday, you see that Peter begins to teach the disciples from the Scriptures. So they were having fellowship, uh, prayer, teaching, as Jesus' followers were all together. Certainly sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? And indeed, one can argue that this was the initial iteration of the church here in chapter 1. And the reason that's significant is because earlier in chapter 1, Jesus orders His disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, that's, that's verse 4 in chapter 1. Jesus doesn't suggest that they stay in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. He doesn't say, Hey fellas, you may want to you know hang out in Jerusalem for a while because this whole Spirit baptism thing might help you. No, in verse 4 He says, He orders them, who is them? The church, to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's very significant. For Jesus to make this a command to the church. Why? Because He knew that the church could not and would not survive without the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and operating through them. okay, And this uh, is very much a matter of power for the church when we talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's a very specific reason for that power. Again, uh, we read it last week in verse 8 of chapter 1. Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And, And, that's a really important and because he finishes the statement with, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you have a job to do. As my followers, there is a commission to make disciples of all nations, to to be the church. That's your job. And the only way that you can ever hope to accomplish this otherwise impossible task is by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and operating through you. Because, by the way, I'm about to leave. This is Jesus telling them, right? And then, of course, He ascends into heaven immediately after that statement. So He commands them to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because there's no point in attempting to function as the church to carry out the Great Commission to make disciples of other people without the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we, we cannot and will not see any measurable results... From our labor as the body of Christ, if the Holy Spirit isn't guiding and directing, teaching, revealing, leading, and empowering us. Without the Holy Spirit, we might as well pack up and go home. And Jesus is making this clear to his followers, and then he he flies away. And so we're going to pick up the story right where we left off. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me, and uh, we'll have it there on the screen as well. We'll learn some things here today about the power of the Holy Spirit and the church. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now I'll just stop there for a minute. This verse alone is worthy of our attention because it underscores the fact that God's primary means of working in the world today is through the church as opposed to solely working through individual effort. And that is the way that he intended it to be from the very beginning. In fact, the power of the Spirit is most effective in us when we are together. And that's point number one of our outline, if you're taking notes. We, we are a hyper-individualistic society. We believe in self-everything. And to a large degree, we've relegated the church to a group function for Christians to give them an opportunity to catch up with other believers and have a break from the grind, the routine, you know, of the world. And it certainly is good to have fellowship at the church and as the church. And that's most definitely one of the functions of the church, but it is so much bigger than that. In fact, the Great Commission was given to the church, not to an individual the baptism with the Holy Spirit was initially given to the church as they were together, not alone. Jesus, and all of His apostles' teaching, was given to the church. The instructions for prayer and healing and prophecy and benevolence and fellowship and communion and baptism and on and on were given to the church. Why? Because the church is God's primary means through which He accomplishes His purposes in the world. Carried out, by the power of the Holy Spirit. You understand when I say church, I'm not talking about this building, the place we meet, the, 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 the organization. I'm talking about believers together. I'm not the church. I'm a member of the church. I'm a part of the body. I'm not the church. We're not the church individually. When we come together, we form the body, the church. Simply put, we're far better off together than we could ever be apart. part. 1 Corinthians twelve fifteen through 26 says, If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body... Each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This isn't going to work alone. We can't do this by ourselves. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is a comprehensive statement about the fact that we need each other. Whether we like it or not, we will only function the way that God intended us to when we function as the church, the body of Christ. There are no lone rangers in God's kingdom. No, it's not the hand of Christ. He doesn't talk about the eye of Christ or the foot of Christ. He talks about the body of Christ. The body only functions properly when all the parts come together. We are the church. And the power of the Spirit is most effective when all the parts are working together. That's one reason why we can't just dismiss church. But we do sometimes. We do sometimes. It's the last priority for a lot of people. It's something they do as, as one of the activities Uh, In their life or one of the aspects of their lives. But if we could truly grasp the fact that when we come together and pray and study and worship and fellowship and commune with God and with each other. The power of the spirit is strengthened in us as we build one another up. If we could grasp that really and believe it we'd be thinking about the next time we gather the moment we leave here. Every time the doors are open we'd be waiting to get in. If we could only grasp the power of the Spirit that is within us as we come together, when we're together, the body of Christ. Acts chapter 9, after Saul's conversion, we see him coming in and out of the churches, in and around Jerusalem, preaching, and he's in fellowship with them. And as a result of them being together and receiving teaching and fellowship, verse 31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What is it? Is it a person? No, it's referring to the church. It was growing and being strengthened. The church grows and is strengthened in the spirit when we're together. Just as they were in our text, as we just read in verse 1. Not simply together in one spirit. People say that all the time. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm together with the body of Christ in spirit. They were physically together, all in one place. That's important, that we actually gather like we are here today. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 talks about the church being built up as it comes together. We won't read it now. This gathering of the local church is critical to our continued strength and effectiveness as as Christians in this life. We should never forsake the gathering of the church. And Hebrews 10.25 talks about that as well. Okay, Let's keep reading. Acts 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is that seminal moment in the history of the church. Where the Holy Spirit, who has been active from Genesis chapter one all the way through the Scriptures, is now coming in a new and, and powerful way upon the followers of Christ the Holy Spirit is is taking up residence in the disciples and empowering them to carry out the great commission. these were uh, Divided tongues as of fire, it says. So it wasn't actual fire. That's just the best way that Luke could describe it. And of course, throughout the Bible, fire represents the purity and holiness and power of God. And then the disciples began to speak in other languages. This was not incoherent babble. These were known languages, as we'll see in the next part of the story here. Some people have tried to make the case that this was a miracle of hearing on the part of those in the crowd standing around in an attempt to dismiss the validity of speaking in tongues, but that is clearly not the case. This was most definitely a miracle of speaking. Verse 4 plainly states that the disciples began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The word tongues in this verse is the Greek word "glossa," which can be translated as language. So the Holy Spirit was literally directing the syllables of these people as they spoke, and they were pouring out the praises of God in many different known languages. This is, this is the part of Acts that freaks everybody out, doesn't it? This is the part that a lot of Christians don't like to talk about in any other context other than a historical one. Because we're generally okay with the supernatural, the really weird stuff that happens in the Bible... But we shudder a bit when we think about that same stuff being relevant today. But in truth, there's no reason for the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk more about, or the gift of tongues to scare anyone off. And we'll talk about how we know the gifts of the Spirit are relevant to us today in a few moments. And We don't have time for a study on tongues this morning, but I'll just explain a few of the purposes of tongues according to Scripture. A few quick bullet points. First of all, tongues serve as a sign to unbelievers. That's what we see happening here in Acts 2. So tongues can be used by God in an evangelical sense as a sign uh, to unbelievers. Second, tongues is a gift of the Spirit, just like every other gift that's lifted, the, the, listed. The Apostle Paul covers all this in 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11. Third, speaking in tongues is a form of prayer and praise. It's a much more personal use of tongues that Paul covers in 1 Corinthians 14. And fourth, tongues, like all of the gifts, are to be expressed appropriately and in order. And so I go over this point every year because it's important. And Paul says so much about it, particularly to the church in Corinth, because they were abusing the gift of tongues and the other spoken gifts. From chapters 12 through 14 in 1 Corinthians, Paul lectures the believers there about the gifts of the Spirit. And he hones in on the spoken gifts and tongues in particular because those spoken gifts tend to be the most provocative and therefore the most abused and often twisted. And this was happening in the church in Corinth. People were blurting out prophecies and tongues in the middle of their church services and it was causing a lot of confusion. So here's how I view this issue in the light of Paul's teaching. If the pastor spends... 20 plus hours every week praying and reading and researching scripture and writing a sermon as the Spirit gives it to me, which I do every single week, then I can tell you absolutely without arrogance hear me please, and you know my heart you guys that know me there is nothing more spiritual or Spirit led that can happen on a Sunday morning than all of us receiving that word from God together Okay, And so if in the middle of that sermon, someone spontaneously interrupts the message and starts yelling out a prophecy, if that was really the Spirit without any influence of the person giving the prophecy, then in effect, the Holy Spirit would be interrupting Himself in order to say something different than what He was just saying through the teacher or the pastor. The Holy Spirit isn't schizophrenic. He wouldn't interrupt himself to say something different than what he was already saying through the delivery of the message that he had given to the pastor or teacher to deliver that day. Do you understand what I mean? The same is true for worship. When we worship together, if we're worshiping in spirit and in truth, as Jesus says in John 4.24, that means we are worshiping in the spirit. And the spirit isn't going to interrupt the worship that he is directing that he is leading to say something or do something different because he isn't schizophrenic, he isn't double-minded. On the contrary, in 1 Corinthians 14, 32 and 33, after Paul goes through three chapters of talking about this thing of, of doing it in order, expressing the gifts orderly, he says, The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. In other words, we may have a valid message from God. Not discounting that. But it isn't God that's directing us to interrupt the service and shout out that message or prophecy in tongues. Because we have control over when and how that gift is expressed. That's what Paul is saying. Therefore, in the spirit of doing all things decently and in order, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.40, my direction for the church has always been that if you feel you have a word from God for us, Rather than blurting that out spontaneously as if we, you know, I just can't control it, I can't hold it in. I ask you to write that message down. okay? And that bothers some people because they think that it takes away from the power of the message. But the truth is, the most profound and significant prophecies of all time are written down in this book. So don't feel bad about writing it down. And then, if you trust me, as your pastor... Give that to me before or after a service, and I'll pray over that, and I'll weigh it with Scripture. And if it's appropriate, I'll share that, or I'll have you share it in the service when it makes sense. Now, I've told you this story before, but when I was in Alaska pastoring in Fairbanks, I would tell the church this same thing about this time every year. And one morning, uh, an elderly woman in the church came up to me, and she was a long-standing member of the church. We knew her well. She had a, a clearly a strong walk with the Lord. And she had on a piece of paper this writing. And she handed it to me and said, I feel like the, word gave, the Lord gave me these words to share with the church. And so I'm doing what you told me. And she gave it to me. And I said, thanks. And I took it back to my office. And over the next few days, I read over that. I waited against scripture. I prayed about that. It was a very scriptural message. It had to do with repentance. And week after week went by. And I, I didn't feel any particular leading to share that. And then one Sunday, it was three or four weeks later, I gave uh, the message to the church. I preached the message, and I'm sure it was the greatest message those people had ever heard. I thought it was. <laughs> I was very, very confident. This is an awesome message. And I preached the sermon, and I got to the altar call at the end, and nobody responded. And I thought, man, that was, that was an awesome sermon. And uh, nobody responded, and God knew what he was doing. He was, he was just putting me right back in my place. And as I stood there and I said, Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to do now? And I was about to close the service, and he said, share the prophecy. So I opened up my Bible. I had it tucked in there in a piece of paper. It was a very scriptural word. This was nothing weird. okay? And it talked about repentance. And so I said, uh, this woman, who everybody knew, gave me this a few weeks ago. And I feel like the Lord wants me to share it with you now. And I read this very simple word from the Lord on the piece of paper. And then I said, now, does anybody want to change their mind about the altar call? And nine people came down and got saved. A great example of prophecy being expressed decently and in order and to great effect. Okay. Likewise with tongues. Outside of an evangelistic situation, like in Acts 2, tongues is a form of prayer and praise. And we can express that modestly if you have that gift quietly during worship or during prayer without shouting it out in a way that draws attention away from God and onto ourselves. Okay, So in this way we certainly don't prohibit the expression of the spoken gifts, but we express them in a way that is orderly and uplifting to the church. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we do believe and express the gifts of the Spirit in our services, not just in the spoken gifts. We often pray for the sick here. We've seen the gifts of faith and healing and miracles, knowledge, certainly wisdom and discernment, all being expressed in this body. And Paul tells us to eagerly desire the gifts. We're going to talk about that more in a little bit. And so we do. We desire the gifts of the Spirit, all right? Now then, let's keep moving forward in our text, starting back in verse 5, where we see that the power of the Spirit will never be understood by the world. Okay, what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of men and women is foolishness to the world. Let's read it at verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Okay, For those who have no relationship with Jesus Christ, those who don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, what the Spirit does in the lives of those who do live for Christ makes no sense. The power of the Spirit will never be understood by the world. The message of the cross, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of men and women, the pursuit of God's will and the life lived according to, the, to Scripture is foolishness to the world. Paul spells it out in 1 Corinthians one 18 through 18-31 and we see it happening here in Acts 2. All of the people standing around watching these events who were not followers of Christ could not understand what the Spirit was doing in the lives of these disciples. And let me tell you, That hasn't changed, nor will it ever. Furthermore, it isn't our job to save men and women. It's our job to teach and preach and live out the truth of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It is then His job to reveal the truth to people's hearts and minds and bring conviction and repentance and salvation. So the church really needs to spend less time worrying about not offending the sensibilities of the world and more time sharing the truth of Jesus Christ. Always in love. Absolutely. With love and compassion, of course. And then we let God work it out from there. It's not our job to constantly try and package what God is doing in a way that makes people feel more comfortable because they don't understand it. Because they will never understand it until the Spirit reveals the truth to them. So it isn't our job to twist or distort or cover up or water down the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to make it more palatable for the world. We're to be separate from the world. What does that mean? It means we're supposed to be different. Being culturally relevant can be a good thing. That's certainly okay. But watering down the gospel so that we don't offend others is never okay. 1st Peter 2:8 says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. 1st Corinthians 123, Paul says we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. Until the spirit of God brings revelation to the hearts and minds of the lost, it will never make sense to them, and we cannot change that. Only he can. Okay, our job is to deliver the message not to try and make it more acceptable to those who don't understand it, All right, Let's keep reading now at verse 14, where in the next part of the story we see that the power of the Spirit is the fulfillment of a promise, okay? But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "'Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day,' The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the world didn't understand what was happening. Peter stood up and preached the word of God to the crowd. This is why one of the reasons why preaching and teaching the word of God is so important. It brings Clarity and understanding as God reveals it to people. And we'll see the results of that in a moment. And he spells out to the people. He says, this is no drunken party or random aberration. In fact, this was all planned by God a long time ago and prophesied by Joel over 500 years earlier. God intended for this to happen, not just at some point in history, but at this very moment, the genesis of the New Testament church, of which we are a part today, because he knew that there would be no other way For us to carry out His will without the power of the Spirit working in us and through us. When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and inquired about salvation, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. John 3, 5, and 6. In other words, a necessary condition for becoming a Christian is being born of the Spirit. This is way more than an intellectual ascent. Although that's part of it, but it's more than that. Being a Christian means having the Spirit of God living inside of you and the power that goes along with it. And that is the fulfillment of the promise that He made for all who choose to follow Him. Okay, Let's continue. Peter's sermon, he demonstrates again as he teaches the Scriptures that the power of the Spirit always testifies to the truth of Christ. In other words... The Spirit of God never has motives contrary to other members of the Godhead. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." through the power of the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, lays out the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those in the crowd. This is why we have the Spirit living in us. It's not so that we can experience great church services and simply feel refreshed on Sundays. That, That may well be a side benefit, but it's not the primary purpose. It's not so that we can impress others with our spiritual insight. It's not so that we can intimidate other Christians who may not experience the same gifts. We are empowered with and by the Spirit so that we can testify to the truth of Jesus Christ and His gospel in every situation to all people. And that's what Peter was doing here. There were people here from many different cultures. Many different backgrounds, certainly with many different convictions about religious matters. And yet he boldly stands before them, all of them, and he testifies to the truth of the gospel of Christ. And he was able to do that because of the power of the Spirit that was now inside of him. I know that for some people, witnessing the truth of Christ can be very intimidating, almost suffocating, particularly to strangers. But if the Spirit is leading you to speak to someone, no matter who it is about Jesus Christ, He will empower and embolden you to carry out that task, to invite that person to coffee or to church or to have that conversation. We just have to take that first step in obedience and look to Him for strength and power and wisdom to do and say what needs to be done and said. As well, over the years, I've encountered a lot of people who have said... Well, Pastor, the Spirit is leading me to do X, Y, and Z. One guy, a leader in one of our churches, in fact, claimed that he was being led by the Spirit to leave his wife and go live with another woman. He may well have been led by the Spirit, but it wasn't the Spirit of God. We should never blame our bad decisions on the Holy Spirit, and yet a lot of people do. There are Christians, for some reason, who feel like they can never admit that they're wrong. About anything, because that would somehow invalidate their walk with God or what He's called them to or invalidate their calling. So they blame every bad decision on Him and say, Well, God's up to something, but I don't understand it. Well, first of all, we're Christians, but we're also human beings. That means we're still going to mess up. We still make mistakes. Being able to admit that means you're becoming a mature Christian. I've never liked the saying, No regrets. I understand. Uh, not living in the past, and I know that's how some people use that. But I've never liked that saying, because if we never admit our mistakes, or allow ourselves to learn from them, then we just keep on making the same mistakes. I have plenty of regrets. Okay, I've learned from them, and I've moved on from them. And so now I'm certainly not going to blame the Holy Spirit for my bad choices. So a good litmus test for whether or not you're truly being led by the Spirit Is, are you and the people around you, are you being drawn toward Christ by what you're doing or not? And is what you're doing in agreement with Scripture? Because the power of the Spirit in us always testifies to the truth of Jesus Christ. It is never contrary to His Word, to Scripture. And certainly never contrary to the Gospel. Okay? Let's continue. This next point, we continue. We see that the power of the Spirit... Changes the hearts of people. This is the result of the Spirit working in Peter and through his preaching, and we see here the effect that it has on the people as we continue to read in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to talk about that in a second. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. Obviously some of them didn't receive it. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Okay, Obviously some reject the free offer of salvation and redemption by God. Some refuse to allow God to work in their lives. But for those who answer His call, who choose to submit to Him and follow Him, our hearts are forever changed. You cannot encounter the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you and remain the same as you were before. He changes us from the inside out. That's why those who have authentic salvation experiences often don't need to inform the people around them that they've changed because the change is so obvious. Not everyone will necessarily understand it, but they will certainly see it. When we accept Christ as Lord and Savior and allow the Holy Spirit to have His way in our lives, when we yield to His leading, the power of the Spirit inside of us, changes us forever we cannot go on the same as before because we see things differently our purpose has changed our our focus has changed because our hearts have been transformed that is something that only the spirit of god can do within us and the beautiful truth is that this power that comes from the holy spirit of god is available to all who choose to follow christ This particular event in in Acts 2 was the fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel chapter 2. But Peter also declares to the people there, which we see in verse 39, that this gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to Himself. That includes you and me. The power of the Spirit is a promise for all who are followers of Jesus Christ. And when we respond to that power... When we receive Him as Lord and Savior, we're eternally changed by the power of the Spirit within us. Alright? And then as we finish through the chapter, we see the point of all of this in action in these final verses. We see that the power of the Spirit is what makes the church work. Alright? None of this works without the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We can get together and have a good time without God, but we cannot have any lasting effect in anyone's life for the cause of Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Let's read starting at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we first started this church, even before we had our first official service, our opening, we would meet every Sunday with a handful of those of you who were helping us start it. And we would literally scrape piles of debris... And dust out of the way. We had piles of carpet and trash everywhere in here. And we'd drag a couple pews back into this room. And Alex and I would play acoustic instruments and we'd have a little worship service, a little church service. And during part of that time, we worked our way through these last six verses of Acts 2. It took us nine weeks to get through these six verses, okay? Today we're rifling through this entire chapter because I wanted us to see the big picture of what was happening on that fateful day when the Holy Spirit showed up in a new way and He changed the landscape forever. But there was so much going on just in these six verses. This was the church, for the first time, firing on all cylinders operating at its full potential. It doesn't take long, as we'll see in the coming weeks in our series, for men to begin messing things up. But right here in these six verses, we see the body of Christ in love and purity and unity and power coming together and doing incredible things, all by the power of the Spirit. And the proof of that is the statement in verse 47, "...the Lord added to their number..." Day by day, those who are being saved. You see, when we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit, in His power, instead of our own clever creativity, when we allow Him to lead us, the results will be unquestionable. They will be obvious. And they will be measurable, because the lives of men and women all around us will be unquestionably changed. It's not us doing it, it's Him. Again, verse 47 says, The Lord added to their number. Sometimes we work really hard at adding to our numbers. We do that in church leadership all the time because we're clever and we're creative. And we mean well. But if the Spirit of God isn't leading us, then where are we going? And why does it matter? If He isn't leading us, then I don't want to go. Anything and everything good that we could ever hope to achieve in our lives that is lasting, both as individuals and the church, will only and ever be accomplished by the power of the Spirit of God working in us. We simply cannot achieve anything significant for God without the Holy Spirit. And people have asked me, well, what about the Old Testament? Some of those guys did some really amazing things. They didn't have the Holy Spirit then, right? Genesis 41.38, Pharaoh asked the question concerning Joseph, Can we find a man like this, and whom is the Spirit of God? Numbers 11.25, The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, that's Moses, and he took the Spirit that was on him and put the Spirit on the seventy elders. When the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. Deuteronomy 34.9, Joshua the son of Nun was full of the Spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. First Samuel ten, six and seven, speaking of Saul, it says the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. First Samuel sixteen, thirteen, speaking of David, it says Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Some translations say in power. In Judges six, thirty-four, as Gideon is about to go to battle and destroy the altar of Baal, it says the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet. Judges 14, 19, speaking of Samson, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down thirty men of the town, and took their spoil. And then Job 32, 8 says, It is the Spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Okay, We could keep going all day with these scriptures. The point is, Even in the Old Testament, every time a follower of God accomplished something great, anything great, they were full of the Holy Spirit. And that is the point of Pentecost. That's what we need to understand today. That is the reason He gives us the gifts of the Spirit. That is why He knew He could send us out to do His will. Because once we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit, all things become possible. So here's how I want to end our service today. As a kid growing up, I'll just tell you, we would do altar calls in church. And the pastor would say something like, I want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes because I don't want to embarrass anyone. And I would think, well, that's good. And so I'd bow my head and close my eyes. And then he'd say, now just, I just want you to slip up your hand if you want to respond to this altar call and put it right back down because I don't want to embarrass anyone. And I would think, well, that's good. And then as sure as I would put my hand up and take it back down, he'd say, now all of you that raised your hand, I want you to come forward. <laughs> I hated that. I always felt duped, you know, tricked by the guy. I never liked that. I always felt that was disingenuous. I don't do that. I'll never do that to you. I will never do that to you. okay? If I want you to come forward, I'll, I'll tell you. I'm going to call you forward. And sometimes we have for prayer for healing. okay? But that's not what we're doing today because that's not necessary. So I want you to know what we're going to do here in a moment. And I'm going to tell you everything that we're going to do. There will be no surprises. And I'm not going to embarrass anyone. okay? But here's the thing. When you pray for salvation to receive Christ in your life and you become born again... You receive the Holy Spirit inside of you. I want to be clear. I'm an an Assemblies of God Pentecostal preacher. And that's not the usual line from the AG pulpit. But that is the truth. There is not a little Jesus that lives inside of you. A little man when you get saved. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells in you. There's only one Holy Spirit. You don't get part of Him. When you get saved and get more of Him later, there's only one, and you get it all when you get saved. If you're a follower of Christ, I am absolutely convinced by Scripture and conviction that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a second part to this. However, Paul says to a bunch of Christians, eagerly desire the gifts. If they all had the gifts... He wouldn't have said that. There would be no reason to desire something that you already have. To ask for something that you already have. Right? And He says, here are the gifts. And He lists them. Not all have this gift or that gift. Or Some have some some, and some have the other. He gives the gifts to whom He wills. The baptism of the Holy Spirit outside of this initial Acts 2 experience, I believe, is when we yield our lives to the Holy Spirit within us. Which I have to do on a daily basis. The old man wants to rise up and take control and say, Spirit of God, you're already in me. I'm not asking you to come into me, you're already there. I'm asking you to take over. I yield myself to you. And by the way, I want your gifts. I want your gifts. And I've asked for those many, many times in my life, prayed for the gifts. And there are gifts that operate in me and in many of you. So we're praying for spirit baptism. Yes, absolutely. It's in the Bible. In the coming days, you will be baptized in my spirit. I believe in that. <clears throat> okay? So what we're going to do in a minute, I'm going to have everyone stand. And if you would like to say to the Lord, and we're going we're to bow our heads and close our eyes, because I'm not going to embarrass you. This really is between you and God. I want you to raise your hands. If you want to say, you know what, Holy Spirit, what I want is every bit... Of you working in me, in power, as much as possible. The fullest potential. Because the moment we get saved, I don't believe we've then arrived. There's a process of sanctification. There's a process of of Him working in our lives that goes on the rest of our natural life. So none of us have arrived. And I believe that I can always... Use the Holy Spirit working in me in a more powerful way. That doesn't mean I need more of Him to come into me. It means I need less of me. I have to yield and allow Him to take over. And then He gives the gifts as He wills. Okay. So if you want that in your life, if you want to ask for that, as we're standing with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm going to raise my hands so you can raise them with me. And we're going to pray a prayer and we're going to ask for the Spirit to increase in us in operation as we get out of the way. Right? That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You take over. I give my life to you. And you know what? Some of you may experience something. You may feel something. You, you may not. It doesn't mean He's not answering your prayer. The Bible says if you ask, you receive. If you ask God for any good gift, He's not going to turn you away. So just because you may not feel something doesn't mean He's not working in your life. And that gift may come immediately. You know what? It may come over the coming days or weeks. That may become aware to you. That's fine. Whatever that is. I've prayed for discernment in my life and God has given me that. I've prayed for wisdom. I've prayed for the gift of teaching. I've prayed for lots of gifts in my life. And He has has given me that. He's been faithful as I've asked. Okay? Does that make sense? Is everybody with me? So why don't you stand and we're just going to close the service. It's a simple prayer.